All right, welcome in everyone to episode 23 of the Peach State Tailgate Sports Podcast. I am Kenny Cochran, joined as always by my co-host, Mr. Jake Hill. Oh yeah. We apologize. We've said it 49 times on the show. We're going to say it 50. We apologize for the delay, ladies and gentlemen. Um, It's been about a week and some change since our last episode. I believe our last episode was not this past Thursday, but the one before. Uh, we celebrated Florida Hate Week in true fashion and talked about the Gators and how much we hate those boys leading up to that game. Predicted an absolute butt whooping. And um, we came in there the week after and did not make a single episode up to the biggest game of the year, the Tennessee game. We had a little little sick sick issue going on. Jake, a little bit under the weather. Had some, had some health stuff going on. Just a lot of stuff going on between the two of us and... To be honest with you, we had to hunker down and get ready to watch some very important football. Got that right, but yeah. I, but I know that we're both super pumped to get out here and talk about it. I know we've been itching to get on the podcast and talk about Florida, talk about Tennessee. Everybody's talking about Tennessee right now, so I can't wait to get to it, man. But um, as always, y'all, thank you so much for watching the show. Thank you for sticking it out with us. I know it's been a minute. We're going to get back to it, get back to regular episodes. Um, first episode of the week here. We'll do another one this week as well, like we always do. But um, Thank you guys for, for watching us. If you're on the YouTube side of things, you're watching us live right now, be sure to check us out on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, man, wherever you get your podcast. Um, you give us a follow. Give us a – turn your notifications on. Give us a review. Uh, you know, interact with us, whatever. Check us out on the Twitter. You see right here if you're on the YouTube, right here I'm pointing at it right now. If you're listening, it is at Peach State Pod on Twitter. We're out there putting in some work, putting some stuff out there, getting some content out there. So we'd love to see you all interact with us, give us some feedback. and. Um, I tell you what, man, we got a lot of stuff to talk about. So I guess without without diving too much into this thing, Jake, what do you say? Let's kick it off. Well, Kenny, I can't get into this uh, before I say great introduction as always, my good sir. And yes, I do want to apologize. I uh, was dealing with a little bit of a sickness there. I went to the doctor. They, they gave me a couple different medications and uh, they got me feeling back right. So we are back in action, ready to roll. And uh, Kenny just mentioned it. We missed a lot of fun stuff, but that is what we're here for. We're here to recoup on the fun stuff. Before we start kicking into the very, very much fun stuff, um, I do have some Braves notes, Kenny, if you'd like me to go ahead and knock those out the way first. Yes, sir. All right, so first thing on the agenda for the Atlanta Braves. Um, I think one of our past episodes, we've mentioned the uh, guys that were listed as the Gold Glove finalists. Um, Dansby Swanson and Max Freed did end up winning the uh, National League Gold Gloves for their respective positions. Uh, Dansby, it was his first career Gold, Gold Glove, first of many, I assume. And Max, it was his third. Uh, these were two guys that me and Kitty both predicted to win these awards, and it, it really comes to no no surprise. Dansby was a guy that had a, you know, by far the best shortstop, you know, best fielding shortstop in baseball season this year. And Max is just a guy that you you can almost pencil in every single year to win the Gold Glove at the pitcher pitcher spot with with his athleticism and stuff. Um, Max is also named as a finalist for another award. He is listed as an NL Cy Young finalist. Uh, he's going against Miami Marlins pitcher Sandy Alcantara. And Los Angeles Dodgers pitcher Julio Urias. Um, so that's a pretty interesting, uh, you know, trio right there. I, I'm I'm putting my money on Alcantara. He he was kind of the guy all year long, and I don't think that has changed. So uh, I'm I'm gonna go with Alcantara there. Uh, no disrespect to Max Freed. You know what he's done with Atlanta for the past years has been amazing. But Sandy was different this year, man. This this guy went out and hurled. And also Urias. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if he's a guy to go out there and win it though, because his his season stats at the end of the year looked very very good as well. Yeah, I'm with you. I think it's going to be Sandy for sure. Uh, obviously, in you know, a least guy, we play him all the time. 
unfortunately, have to see him pretty frequently down there in Miami. Dude just absolutely terrorizes everybody he sees. Um, he's a big dude. He throws hard. He throws filthy pitches. He pretty much does everything you want to see out of a pitcher and you don't want to see out of a pitcher when you're playing against him. So, um, and then the numbers. I mean, it's all about numbers, right? It's all about numbers, how you perform on the big stage. And uh, this dude just did it year in or uh, week in and week out this entire season. So I'm with you. Yeah, the beauty about baseball, too, is that in most major sports to win these big awards, you have to be playing on a competitive team. You have to be on a team that is getting a lot of spotlight. In baseball, it's not like that. We've seen Mike Trout win multiple MVP awards, and now you make the playoffs. That's that's just kind of the role. That's like kind of the role baseball plays. And uh, the numbers Alcantara put up, the Marlins may not have been very good, but he was, I think they had above 500 record when he was pitching, which is very, very good for that AAA offense they run out every day. Um, I also have another thing that kind of brings me to a question for you, Kenny. Um, the Atlanta Braves have two guys as the NL Rookie of the Year finalists. I think they're going against um Brandon Donovan of the St. Louis Cardinals, but he's 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 not even he's not even notable in this conversation. It's uh Michael Harris and Spencer Strider. One of these guys are going to take this home, and I think kind of the big question in Braves country right now is who is that going to be? Because the whole year we went back and forth and tried to flip flop on you know who it was going to be. It was Strider for so long, and then we kind of jumped on Harris's train. And now that everything's over, nobody else can make up any ground on another person. Who do you think is going to win the NL Rookie of the Year, Kenny? It's Michael Harris. Um, I love Strider. I love what he did for us. He's an absolute dog. Um, I looked at stats when we started talking about this pre-show. Um, obviously, check us out on the YouTube. We mention it every episode. Get in there in the live a little bit beforehand. Get a little behind-the-scenes action. But, uh, yeah, man, I pulled it up, started looking at it. I was curious to see because I know Strider missed some time there at the end, and obviously Michael Harris did not play a full season. Um, but if you're looking at 162-game average, full projection based off of this year, the numbers are ridiculous for both of them. Um, you look on the pitching side for Spencer Strider. Dude is projected for a 2.69 ERA. Um, let's see. 259 strikeouts. That's ridiculous. You talk yeah. about a guy that steps out there on the mound, face full of mustache, just throw in 100 miles an hour right by you and you can't do anything about it, and he's a rookie. Um, that's a ridiculous thing to think about. But I don't want to say this to discount Spencer Strider at all. I don't. But what Michael Harris was able to do this season, from a numbers perspective and for a, a team perspective, you can make the argument that Michael Harris was the MVP for the Braves this entire year. Um, so when you talk about how much an individual contributes to their, you know, specific team, I don't think you're talking about rookies in this conversation, but I don't know if there was another player on this Braves roster that contributed more than Michael Harris did. And let's talk about Michael Harris's projections, man, from the plate. Um, in 162 game season, this dude is projected a 297 batting average, a 91 RBIs, 27 home runs and 28 stolen bases. I mean that's that that's that's ridiculous. So um, that that alone, and just seeing him as a Braves fan, what he was able to do every single game for this Braves team. I mean, dude was so clutch. He was you know batting for average, hitting for power, stealing bases, and then his defense. Man, his defense is ridiculous. This dude should have been a Gold Glove candidate. Should have won the Gold Glove. And um, it was an absolute shame that he wasn't even in there. I know we have already talked about that in another episode, but everything Michael Harris brings to the team for me, it's, I think he's the clear pick. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I'm actually going to go the same route as you. I, I also am going to roll with Michael Harris. One key thing for me is that um, 
it's a lot easier for position players to win a rookie of the year award than it is for pitchers, kind of similar to the MVP award. Um, we saw it last year happen. Uh, Jonathan India took home the award whenever Trevor Rogers uh, was absolutely throwing the hell out of the ball with Miami with like a 2.5 ERA, made the all-star team, did all, did everything right. And a guy that hit 269 with 21 bombs won the rookie of the year over him. So, and that, that's no offense to Jonathan India. He's a great player, but, you know, Trevor Rogers, you know, seemed like he was definitely the clear, like, better rookie. And uh, Strider was a guy that was very historic. We saw him break multiple records. Fastest guy to ever get 200 strikeouts. Um, Atlanta franchise record for most strikeouts in the game was 16. Strider did a whole lot, but, you know, a guy like Michael Harris that people get to see every single day and get to see the production. Legit, there's a super good argument. This is the MVP of this Atlanta Braves team that won over 100 games as a rookie. Um, I, I agree with you. I think Michael Harris is, is the pick. Um, but if it does go to Strider, I, I also would not be mad, obviously. Um, I bet, may the best yeah. man win, but my pick is – my money would be on Michael Harris. Right, and, and I think it's probably I, – I, you can't really make the bias claim, really, because they're both Braves. But – from just an individual perspective, like from a fan of the team, I'm a guy, and I know you are too. Like, if if I can, I'll try and watch all 162. Um, and if I were to guess, I'd say I probably saw like 135, 140 of the 162. Like, I brave the Braves are just something that they're always on TV. It's always something you can watch, and we love the team. You get so attached to these players. It's so much different than football, right? Like, we get a Obviously, we love the dogs, we love the Falcons, and you know I'm not sitting here trying to say that I love baseball more than football because that's not the case. I'm a naturally you know football lover, but when you're seeing a football team play, they got full pads on, they got the helmet on, they go out there and play 60 minutes, and then they leave. If they get a post game interview, they get a post game interview. But in baseball, you're seeing these guys, you're seeing how they react to stuff. You see them in the field, you see them at the plate. They're not wearing a helmet. You see their facial reactions. It's so interactive too because when you're watching a Braves broadcast pregame, postgame, you get to know these guys. Um, and I think just seeing what Michael Harris has done throughout this entire year of watching him play. Like, whenever the Braves needed something clutch, whenever we needed a clutch hit in the top of the ninth inning, bottom of the ninth inning, whatever it is, or a guy to go out there and make a play on defense to save a run, he was the guy. I mean, he would throw somebody out at home. He'd hit a clutch home run. He'd hit a base, uh, you know, a, a gapping base hit to a single or a double to, to drive in the winning run. Like, the things he was able to do, I mean, he was just literally ice cold as a rookie. And that doesn't mean Spencer Strider wasn't. Spencer Strider certainly was, but you mentioned it. I mean, position players get a lot more notoriety than than pitchers. And um, Michael Harris, man, I th what he brings to this Braves team is ridiculous. And that's why he got the contract, and that's why he's going to be a staple on this team for the next eight years. Yeah, the beauty of this whole thing is, is that no matter who wins the NL Rookie of the Year, both of these guys are locked up for a long, long time. And they are both... Very, very fun players to watch. Anytime you get to see either of these kids on the TV, um, days that Strider gets to start or every single day for Michael Harris, they are most likely going to do something that is going to make you very excited. Um, that brings me to my last and final note for the Braves. Um, minor move, but the offseason did get kind of kicked off. World Series is over by now. Um, Houston is the World Series chance for anybody out there that does not know yet. Um, but the Braves have made a move. We have traded minor league pitcher Dylan Spain to the Colorado Rockies for outfielder Sam Hilliard. Um, I don't know too much about Sam Hilliard. Uh, very light things. He's been a guy that's kind of jumped up and down from AAA to you know the major leagues the past couple of years. I want to say he's a twenty-eight year old. Uh, he's a twenty-eight year old lefty. I, I've heard a couple things about him that he has really really good tools. He's a he's a bigger guy, big time power, can run, can play a lot of different outfield spots. Excuse me. Um. 
a lot of different outfield spots, and uh, he just has not been able to put together much success. Um, it's a very, very low leverage type move. Obviously, you don't really mind giving up a guy like Dylan Spain. No offense, Dylan Spain. We love you on the podcast. Uh, but um, you know, the show. Yeah, you don't really probably so. You know, uh, I, I think he was playing in independent league. Um, but <laughs> you don't really mind giving up something like that. This is this is just a lottery ticket that we we've seen Alex Anthopoulos, You know, love to try to try to bring into Atlanta and try to spark something in them. Um, this Braves coaching staff has done a really, really good job of that in the past. Bringing in kind of random guys and t- kind of turned them into like, maybe like everyday names for Braves fans, guys like Guillermo Heredia and Orlando Arcia. So this is just another one of those type moves. Not going to be your superstar on your team, but could turn out to be somebody that makes an impact at some point. Um, that is it on Sam Hilliard in the Atlanta Braves for me, Kenny. Is there any, any final touching points you want to put out there? No, man, that's really it for me. Um, kind of like you, you said you didn't know much about this guy. I actually know nothing about this guy, so can't really give you any insight there, but, um, yeah, you don't give up a lot. You get somebody who apparently has all the tools in the world. So, um, I don't know, maybe it's a depth piece. Maybe, you know, who knows? 28 year old lefty. Um, I, I don't really have anything to say about it. Yeah, anytime Alex Anthopoulos makes a move, just keep your eyes open. Maybe he might turn out to be something, or maybe he might be, you know, he might not even make it out of spring training. Who cares? It's 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 not a big move at all. So we're just going to pass it by, and we're going to root for Sam Hilliard and hope he can, you know, bring a little bit of fire to this Atlanta Braves team. Um, but getting off the Atlanta Braves, that kind of tips me off a little bit into the Atlanta Hawks before we get going into football. I know you, I know you like that little tip-off reference. Uh, sir. We've missed a lot of action, so I'm not I'm not gonna go too far back. I, I do wanna mention, um, as of right now, it is uh Tuesday, November eighth at nine twenty one PM. I'm gonna give you a little time check. There's no NBA action today because yesterday every single NBA team played. There was not every team had a game yesterday, so there's no action tonight. But the Hawks are on a three game win streak right now after beating Milwaukee Monday night in Atlanta at State Farm Arena. Um, and this is very, very notable for Hawks fans. If you did not watch the game, Trey Young actually missed the game with a shin in- injury. Um, he got banged up a little bit in that uh, New Orleans game, I want to say, with the eye with the eye issue. He came back out, had the funny-looking glasses on. Um, and then I think he had, had an issue with maybe Zion or somebody. I think Zion might have landed on him and messed up his shin or calf. There was a little bit of, like, going back and forth on which one it was. So I think it's listed as a shin issue right now, so we're going to roll with that. And... Uh, this Hawks team, I'm not going to go back and cover all the games. We're just going to focus on this Milwaukee game because this is really the, the biggest game of the season thus far. This is the Milwaukee team that came into the night 9-0, um, the top team in the in the East for the NBA. And this Hawks team had some guys step up. DeJounte Murray is a guy that you know we mentioned a lot on this podcast talking about the Atlanta Hawks. He's a guy that we have high hopes for. and We, we kind of expect a lot from DeJounte, and he gave us exactly that, You know, kind of taking over the number one player role with Trey Young out. But the unsung hero, a guy that I think a lot of Hawks fans were really, really excited to see, the 19-year-old kid from Duke, A.J. Griffin. The kid comes out and plays 31 minutes last night against against a you know championship contending team with Giannis Antetokounmpo on the floor and drops 24 points, uh, four rebounds, one assist, three steals, just absolutely plays the, a hell of a game. His shot was aggressive, man. He was, he was trying to heave him up there and he was making him. This is something with AJ Griffin we've seen in, in you know the little spurts he's played so far this year. He he has the ability to make a lot of shots. Um, his jump shot is silky, silky smooth. And uh, seeing him play his first like real NBA minute in a game, um, he was a plus twenty eight in this game to put it a little bit into perspective. The highest on the whole team. Um, it was really, really nice to see. Uh, I I hope we get to see some more AJ Griffin minutes. Uh, I know that 
primarily the reason he was playing so much was because Trey Young was out. He was kind of filling one of the ring, wing roles with uh, Aaron Holiday kind of taking Trey Young's spot. Um, but I hope we get to see more A.J. Griffin, man. He he is so much fun to watch. And I know fans like me and Kenny who love the young guys, love like love the question marks out there that, that could turn out to be nothing but could be you know the next Clay Thompson or whatever you want to say, whatever shooter you want to compare him to. Um, that's always fun to see. And whenever he comes out in balls like this, it was awesome. No, absolutely, man. And um, you talk about this Hawks team and the lack of depth that we've had in the past and, you know, how excited we were to get a guy like DeJounte Murray. Um, and I think that's just a huge thing when you talk about a matchup against the Milwaukee Bucks, who you mentioned it, this team's undefeated, definitely top dog in the East, one of the top dogs in the NBA. And the Hawks come in, you know, touting a 6-3 and three record without their number one scorer in this game. And you see a guy like DeJounte Murray step up with a, a – I believe had a double double in this game. I know he had twenty five points. I don't know. Twenty five, eleven, and eight. Twenty five points, eleven assists, eight rebounds, and three steals for Dejounte. That's it. Yeah, and uh, another thing I wanted to talk about too, man. You, when we're talking about depth and we're talking about guys contributing, you mentioned AJ Griffin, and uh, I just mentioned Dejounte Murray, but uh, Clint Capella, man. Um, Clint Capella is a guy that's been a little bit slow to start the year. A guy that usually is a big contributor offensively and defensively. Um, back-to-back games uh, against the Pelicans, 19 rebounds against the Bucks, 12 rebounds. So you see uh, Clint Capella getting a little bit down and dirty. Seems like he might be coming to a little bit. So hopefully we get to see him uh, contribute a little bit more and we'll get Trey back from injury and get him back right. Hopefully he uh, completely, you know, gets gets back from that eye injury and that shin injury and, and comes out there. But it seems like, I don't want to jinx us a little bit, but Maybe we're we're losing the inefficiency bug a little bit. I hope so, man. I, I really, really hope so. A thirty-eight percent shooting percentage from three-point range. I will take that any given night for this Atlanta Hawks team. Please and yeah. thank you. Um, that was something that a lot of people talked about going to this season, especially without Bogdanovich, is how this Atlanta Hawks team is going to shoot the ball because we have a lot of guys that can shoot the ball. But maybe not known for being the most efficient shooters in the world. Um, I think that's kind of been the stigma around Trey Young is that he's he's you know he he likes to take the crazy shots and for the most part he he is an efficient shooter at the NBA level. He's he's a lot more efficient than you know what people thought he was going to be. But he still does have a tendency sometimes to have those you know one for eight nights from three point range and stuff like that. Um, uh, but seeing Dejounte shoot the ball uh well, and Justin Holiday is another guy I want to mention. Fourteen points, going four for seven from three point range is a good thing to see from the from I think what a thirty two year old veteran. Um, Justin Holiday is a good player, so yeah, the Hawks have a lot of things to look forward to. Um, it was nice to mention that you know having Trey Young out in the depth that you had mentioned. This is a game that in the past we would have penciled in as a loss, most likely, like before the game yeah. even started. But having a guy like Dejounte Murray that can fill that point guard role, and then in the starting lineup you also have guys like Clint and John and DeAndre around him with you know a, an improved bench that I would say from from last year, guys like Nyeko Kongwu getting better. Um. Jalen Johnson replacing Daniel Gallinari as that backup power forward. I love Gallo. Gallo was just a little bit of a, uh, you know, he was a little bit hot, cold guy. He would, he would, you know, win you, win you games some nights, but he would lose you games others. So, you know, I, I think this is, this is an improved Hawks team and we'll see a lot of progression going on. Um, I had another thing I kind of want to mention, Kenny, and I don't really expect you to, you know, talk on this because this is not something we talked about beforehand, but whenever you get time, go look up uh, Kevin Herter's game winning attempt in Sacramento last night against Golden State and the foul that Golden State committed that was not called on his not game winner it was it was he they were trying to tie the game on a three-point attempt but uh 
go check it out whenever you get time because it was very interesting. And I also have to let you know, the Red Mamba is sporting a headband now. So we're we're getting pretty legit in Sacramento. The first time I checked in on Kevin was yesterday, and uh, he looks good with the headband. Him and him and uh, Swiper, Deer and Fox are are look like they're having having some fun over there in Sacramento. I actually saw it. they were talking about it on ESPN this morning, um, so I know exactly what you're talking about. And I have been following Kevin Herter biblically. I love that man. Yeah, I think every Hawks fan out there, we might have traded him. I'm not even too upset we traded him because. I think that this opens up a door for Kevin. I think Kevin's scoring 17 points a game this year. So letting Kevin Herter go over to Sacramento, who's, who's not really a great team, and be able to put up the, his numbers. We know Kevin Herter can score a basketball. That has never been yeah. a question from any Hawks fan. He's shooting 52% from three this year. I don't, I don't have the number in front of me, but I looked it up earlier. I'm pretty sure it's 52%. He's scoring like 17 points per game. So, Kevin, keep on balling out. I just want to let you know, uh, Hawks fans still love you. Oh, yeah. We will always love the Red Mamba. Very nice. Uh, I don't want to get into too much look ahead stuff because I know we have another podcast this week, so I'll save that for later. But that wraps up my Hawks talk for now. Big win against uh, big big win against Milwaukee, and uh, let's continue the success on. We're seven and three right now. Uh, the Hawks have never missed the playoffs while starting a season seven and three, so looking promising. Hundred percent, Kenny. What does this bring us into? I, I'll, I'll I'll pass the baton to you. All right, before we rip into the heavy hitter stuff. Weekly Canes update. Okay, Look Canes update, okay. Weekly Canes update, Carolina Hurricanes, currently second in the Metropolitan Division, sporting the third, maybe fourth. I know there's some games happened last night since I checked. Best record in the NHL. Team is scoring a ton of points and doing what we do best, playing amazing defense. So the boys are out there balling. Um, we had a bad loss uh, in the last game against uh, Toronto. Toronto's a very good team. Um, we got a couple days off, and then we're heading into tomorrow night's game against Florida. And then, you know, not looking ahead, not looking ahead or anything, but I am looking ahead, so whatever. But um, we got a rematch Thursday, a game I'm very, very pumped about. 7 o'clock, puck drop against the Edmonton Oilers, taking on Connor McJesus and the boys who um, we traveled up there to Edmonton um uh, a couple of weeks ago and got our butts handed to us, gave up six goals in that game, which is super uncommon for your best defensive team in the NHL. So uh, looking for a big revenge game there and um, but very, very excited. And then we follow that up with a uh, November 12th matchup against your reigning Stanley cup champs, the Colorado avalanche. So uh, we got some big games coming up, man. We actually got a, not a double header, but two, two games against the avalanche coming up next week. So, um, Big games coming up. We need got a couple days off. Got some guys banged up. Really, really needed this. I know Freddie Anderson was dealing with a little bit of a nagging injury, and that was really, really hurting him. Um, so you saw Auntie Ronta get back there in the net. And, um, you know, love Auntie. Can't complain about him. But uh, Freddie Anderson is certainly top five tendy in the NHL. And anytime you get that guy between the sticks, you want to have him back there. So uh, weekly Canes update. Nothing too crazy, but uh, the boys are playing really, really good puck right now. We need to keep it up. Go Canes. All right, baby. Let's head into it, Jake. You Let's ready go. to talk Let's some go. dogs? Let's go. Let's go. Okay, let me contain myself. Okay. <laughs> All right, baby. Let's go, dog nation. It's been a couple weeks, week and a half, however long it's been. I don't know. But we're fired up, man. We talked about Florida hate week. We talked about everything that we hate about those nasty, disgusting, waste of space, waste of air Florida Gators. We talked about it. We came out and talked about how we thought the game was going to go. It was the largest spread in series history. Jake and I both said we are going to throw it all over those boys. 
We are going to run it all over those boys. They are not going to be able to do anything against us. And boys and girls, what happened? You're right. That. That happened. Dogs come out there and dominate Florida. 42-20 to win. Um, It was a little bit closer, or looks a little bit closer than it actually was, and it still wasn't close. 22-point victory for the dogs. Would have liked to see them cover. Came up half a point shy. But, hey, when you're a 22.5-point favorite against an SEC team and you win by 22, you take it. You don't don't complain about it. You take it, and you roll on. Um, Absolute dominant win, man. Uh, Stetson Bennett came out there, threw for 316 yards. Dajon Edwards led the team. First solo 100-yard rushing performance for a dog this season, and that is uh, Dajon Edwards with 106. Brock Bowers continues to show why he is the best player in college football. Came out there with 154 receiving yards. Um, Absolute dog, man. This team started humming uh, about four weeks ago, headed off that kind of a lackluster performance at Missouri. We talked about how we, you know, came out there and routed Auburn, played really good there, came out there and destroyed Vandy in a shutout, played really good there. Um, and we're hoping we could keep that momentum up and we carried it right into Jacksonville in the world's largest cocktail party and did the exact same thing there. Yeah, this was a fun game in uh, Florida fans, Georgia fans, any fan that wants to listen right here. Um, 42 to 20 makes this game seem a lot closer than what it was because we were a... Kenny McIntosh fumble and a Malachi Starks uh, rare freshman mistake away from this game being a lot more ugly. Um, Malachi had got burned a little bit. He kind of kind of bit a little bit inside on a post route, and the and the deep ball was wide open on the right side of the field. Happens happens to everybody. Um, and Kenny McIntosh had a ball. He ran up the middle. Was it was it Kenny McIntosh? I think fumbled the ball. I think he ran the ball up the middle. Might have fumbled it. Um, I mean, I'm about to go play by play. It was a, uh, let's yeah, see. It was Kenny Mack. Okay, so yeah, Kenny McIntosh fumble. Um, So there was a couple things in this game that, you know, kind of kept Florida in the game and kept them alive. Um, um, Stetson, you know, he, he had a, he had a good game there, but he also did throw two interceptions, something that we're not really used to seeing with Stetson. Um, this year and last year, he was he was pretty good about keeping the interception, interception numbers down. But this is a game that we won by 22 points by losing the turnover battle by three. Um, surprisingly, Florida did not turn the ball one time. Um. But we should take that as a positive because if we turn the ball over three times against a team that did not turn the ball over once and we still beat them by 22, I will take that as a win all day long. And you mentioned it, dude, since the Missouri game, people like to hold that Missouri game against these Georgia Bulldogs so much. We don't care about the Sanford game. We, we are not worried about one. We're worried about y'all holding us, holding Missouri against us. That was one game. And other than that, we have shown that we are the best team in the country continuously. And I, you know, a little bit of a, a look ahead, but we're, we're going to talk about why we have the best team in the country in, in just a couple minutes. We absolutely are going to talk about that. And um, I will say in this game, man, um, I'm actually pulling up the rankings right now just out of curiosity to see what this Florida looks like in total offense. Give me a brief second here, ladies and gentlemen. Florida is 41st in the nation. They average 430 yards per game on offense. I want to see. um, Georgia, 555 yards of total offense in this game. Absolutely ridiculous. Just about 200 yards more than Florida. 
Um, you talk about sheer dominance, and Jake, you mentioned it with the score. I said it too. Score looks closer than it was. Um, a couple, you know, rookie mistakes, I guess you could call it, just kind of inopportune situations. Um, one of those things I want to talk about is uh, Dom Blaylock getting robbed. <laughs> yeah. In one of the most ridiculous interceptions I've ever seen in my life. No clue whatsoever who the guy was that robbed that ball from Don Blaylock. But one thing we have talked about on this show time and time again is how Dominic Blaylock seems to be the guy with hands of steel. Where you need a play, you throw it to Dom, Dom goes up, gets it, kind of like Brock Bowers-esque. The ball hits his hands, he doesn't give, he just snatches it, brings it down. Stets him through a beautiful, you could call it an underthrow, I don't know if he was, I don't know if it was a accidental underthrow or back shoulder play at the sideline, I'm not sure. But um, I'm going to call it a back shoulder. Uh, it looked like it was intended to be a back shoulder play at the sideline on a little fade route. Dom went up, got it, put it in his hands, came down with it, and on the way down, the Florida defensive back snatched that thing out of his hands, came down with position, landed in bounds. It was honestly one of the craziest things I've ever seen. Um, and, I, you know, you really can't do anything about that. You, you mean, you know, Dom Blaylock is a really, really good player and a guy that has really, really good hands, and he just kind of got sunned on one play. So, you know, you really can't make an excuse for it. Oh, yeah, um, it happens. Things like that are going to happen, and there's not really much you can do about it. Um, but three total turnovers in this game, man. We talked about turnovers killing us. We've got really, 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 really good about limiting turnovers. It's something that this team has progressively gotten better with, and we've seen it kind of improve as the season goes on. Um, Three turnovers in this game. The Florida's zero. Um, so anytime you are minus three on the turnover battle and you win by 22 points, that's a sign of a pretty good football team, boys. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely but the yeah. sign of a good football team. I know we're itching to talk about it, man. You got anything else you want to talk about in this game? Man, I am already looking ahead at what, what we're about to talk about next. It's, 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 hard. it's hard to stay away from it. I know it is. I know it is. And let's go ahead and talk about it. Good old Rocky Top. Old Rocky Bottom. Oh, my word. These Tennessee fans, man. Tennessee fans on social media. Tennessee pump-uppers on ESPN. Anywhere you want to look, everybody's talking about Tennessee. They're talking about Hendon Hooker. They're talking about Jalen Hyatt, Cedric Tillman's back, man. This team's been scoring 50 points a game on Alabama. They didn't have their number one receiver. They've been running the ball. They've been playing pretty good defense. Hey, this team's actually top of the board when you talk about sacks. This offensive line's pretty good. Man, Jake, this is an all-around good team. That's what I heard, too. And guess what? I mean, everyone talked about it, and guess what happened? Guess what happened? College football playoff rankings came around first time. What'd they do? They put Tennessee number one. They did. But Ohio, Ohio State number two, they moved – your undefeated Georgia Bulldogs back to three. Well, why did they do that, you ask? Well, Tennessee's got five ranked wins. Didn't y'all know it? I know the teams they the teams they played might not be ranked anymore. They're the same teams that Georgia beat and the same team that Georgia beat by more points than Tennessee did. But I'll tell you what, Tennessee, it's a better win for them because when Tennessee beat that Florida team, we didn't know they sucked yet. It was a notable win. Yeah, it was a notable win because we didn't know that that Florida team was hot garbage. So what do they do? They win by five. They give up 500 passing yards to Anthony Richardson. And the dogs go down there and stomp them by 22. And the college football playoff committee says, here you go, Tennessee. Take this number one. You can roll with it. You can have it. Well, boys and girls, I'm here to tell you that that number one ranking for your Tennessee volunteers lasted all of about five days. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed it because it's, it's probably not going to happen again. Because that number one team in the nation, number one offense in the nation, dominant team, 
this team was just like that 2019 LSU team, Jake. That's what they said. I saw, I saw the graphic comparing the two. I heard Hendon Hooker was the second coming of Joe Burrow. What does this team do? Surely they're going to go down there and stomp the dogs in Athens. I mean, Neyland Stadium is the most electric atmosphere in college football. 130 decibels. There's no way Sanford Stadium is going to be able to do that. Boys, I'm here to tell you that this Tennessee Volunteers team stepped into Athens. They walked right into Sanford Stadium with the number one ranking right next to their name, and they toted home the absolute mother of all butt whoopings. Yes. Yes, they did. This was an absolute clinic put on by your Georgia Bulldogs. We talked about this Tennessee defense. Number one offense in the country, right? Can't deny it. Number one in yards. 82 defense. 126 passing defense in the country. 126 out of 131. Why do they do that, you ask? Jake and I talked about it. Tennessee has a very unique defensive scheme. They have this tendency to load the box, just like they did against Alabama. They sent the house to Bryce Young every single play and said, you know what, Bryce Young, if you want to beat us, you've got to be stellar. Bryce Young was stellar, but that Alabama team, unfortunately for them, is not the Georgia Bulldogs. Tennessee came out here, loaded the box against this Georgia team, and said, you know what, y'all are not going to be able to run the ball on us. And guess what Georgia said? Uh, we'll go for 130 yards. Yes. Then they said, okay, well, we're going to send pressure, so um, you're, you guys are not going to be able to throw the ball on us because we're going to pressure Stetson Bennett. We said, okay, well, we'll throw for 260 yards and two touchdowns. And then Tennessee said, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Well, surely to goodness, if you're running the ball on us and you're throwing the ball on us, it's just going to be a shootout. So our offense will go out there and, and, and just kind of dominate like we always have. Well, Hendon Hooker threw for under 200 yards, zero touchdowns, and an interception. He held him. Boys, this game was nothing like the Tennessee Volunteers wanted it to be, and it is everything like we expected. This game did not go how Georgia fans hoped it would. This game went how Georgia fans knew it would. We knew this game was going to be exactly how it ended up. We held Tennessee to under 200 yards passing, under 100 yards rushing, absolutely dominated them on defense. Six sacks, boys and girls. This is that same Georgia team that can't pressure quarterbacks. We can't do anything. Well, guess what? Look at the numbers. We might be one of the worst as far as sack numbers go. We are leading college football in quarterback pressures, leading them. We talked about why, why is that the case? We, we've talked about that several times on the show. It seems like the teams we play have a tendency to get the ball out quick. They scheme against it. They want to get the ball out on the perimeter, throw it outside the numbers. Talk about an offense like Kent State. Obviously, Kent State's Kent State. We can talk about that game as much as you want to. But that team is a team. Uh, that offense is a, is a unit that is based on getting the ball out to the perimeter, getting it to the sidelines, getting the ball out of the number or outside the numbers. And Kent State actually did a pretty good job of doing that against us. Showed a couple things that we needed to work on on defense, and that was perimeter defense, uh, protecting against the screen. This Tennessee Volunteers team does not do that. Hendon Hooker sits back in the pocket and slings the ball 70 yards downfield. And when you got Keely Ringo, who, you know, you can criticize him on several aspects, but for the most part was, was very, very good. Kamari Lasseter. Clamps. Dude was locked down all game long. And guess what we had to do? We put Malachi Starks on the boundary and said, guess what, Tennessee? You want to line up Jalen Hyatt, the guy who terrorized Alabama's defense, who's been terrorizing all of college football, 14 receiving touchdowns? Well, I'll take him, and I'll line up our number one covered safety, the best covered safety in all of college football, freshman Malachi Starks. And Malachi Starks locked him down. He was on him like white on rice, like stink on poop, like whatever you want to call it. 
This game was absolute domination. I know I'm rambling. I know Jake's got stuff he wants to say. But, y'all, I've been waiting to talk about this for a long time. I've had it. I'm sick and tired of talking about this Tennessee Volunteers team. I'm sick and tired of it. And, thankfully, we got these boys out of the playoff. They are out of the top four. We got them out of Sanford Stadium. We can go out there. We can disinfect the town of Athens and get that stench of Tennessee Orange out of there and the stench of the Tennessee fans who came down here smelling like whatever. Man, I mean, Rocky Top, you can take that song, you can shove it, you can take it back to Tennessee, and y'all can try and win out the rest of the year. And I hope y'all have a really, really good time sitting back there in your trailer park, stringing your Keystone light and watching us play in the SEC Championship. Yeah, yeah, I I, I think that was that was a very good breakdown, Kenny. Um, I, I'll give that one I'm to sorry you. Sorry for rambling. I'm no, 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 you, you bought it. It, it. it was it was very much deserved, man. I, I, I respect it a ton. Um, But, yeah, this, this Georgia team, they came out and they were dominant. Um, Tennessee fans should thank the God, thank God for rain because without rain, this game they might have got beat by forty. It was twenty-seven to six at half. The rain started coming down, and uh, yeah, Tennessee got the ball at halftime. Guess what Georgia did? They forced Tennessee to punt the ball. Then we get the ball back and run a fifteen-play, eight-minute and forty-four-second drive in the third quarter. Josh Heupel, um, that is our coach, kind of pumping the brakes a little bit and running this game out. Um, if we didn't want to do that, we could have just kept racking up points on y'all. That is what this Georgia offense was doing. And I, I hope that Tennessee fans kind of sent a message to the rest of the nation whenever they did the little whole little thing where they, where they leaked Stetson Bennett's phone number and tried to get people to call him all throughout the night. You don't want to awaken that beast. Because whenever Stetson Bennett is playing with the swagger he played with against Tennessee, it is nearly unstoppable. Stetson was on the field, and that was the most fun I have seen Stetson Bennett play football since he has been at the University of Georgia. We've seen Stetson. Stetson has been a guy that's kind of, you know, he's, he's always kind of kept his head down. He's always kind of, you know, just do whatever he can to win the game. This year, things have changed a little bit. I think he's kind of gotten that moxie to him this year where, he, where he's kind of, you know, I, I'm, I'm the number one quarterback. Nobody's challenged me at my job. Y'all messed up waking this kid up because holy cow, Stetson was damn near perfect in this game if you were watching this game. From, you know, the, the flashy run play on the first on the first touchdown of the game where he, where he high-stepped out of some pressure and then bolted for the bolted for the pylon, dove, um, Helmet to helmet, um, I will say the Tennessee players should have got ejected at that point, but they, they didn't even look at that. They were looking at the touchdown. Um, and we talk about, you know, a throw to Lad McConkey where Lad McConkey broke outside and then cut up and absolutely left his defender 15 yards behind him. And Stetson threw the touchdown pass and then did the gladiator, are you not entertained pose at midfield? Like, dude, Stetson was so much fun to watch. And That's the Quavius right there. Yes, yes. He was out there showing his his full-on uh he spent the night in Atlanta before that because he was full on ATL in, in in that game. He was he was showing out for sure. Um but there there's two MVPs in this game. And it was Stetson Bennett and it was this Georgia defense. I, I'm not going to name one player because everybody came to show up. The play of the game on the defensive side for me was uh Kelly Ringo. Keely Ringo lined up out wide against Cedric Tillman and absolutely ran his route for him. Ran the route better than what Cedric Tillman did. And that was the best ball Hendon Hooker threw all night if he went to throw it to Keely Ringo because Keely Ringo was so on that route. It was ridiculous. Um, 
Georgia just looked insane. We talk about with Tillman, uh, seven receptions, 68 yards, six receptions, uh, 63 yards for Jalen Hyatt. This is a very, very similar game plan to what we had against Oregon. If you were watching the game, we did not mind giving them the underneath stuff. We were letting them throw their little eight yard, eight yard, uh, you know, curl routes, whatever you want to throw. But whenever you get to the red zone, if you can get to the red zone, if you don't make a mistake, that's going to mess you up. Um, good luck getting in because this Georgia team is not going to allow it. And just so happened that Tennessee kind of didn't play along with Georgia in that aspect. They knew what we wanted to do, and they still tried to take the top off the defense, and it did not work. Um, we talk about it, man. Uh, there was so much, so much fun stuff, man. The pressure getting to the quarterback. In that second half, we were on Hendon Hooker so bad. He was trying his best to make plays in the backfield, and we were on him. And another thing about all these sacks, I do want to mention, a lot of these sacks were covered sacks. They were sacks where Hidden Hooker had time in the pocket to read the field and make a decision. And he couldn't find anything open. And I know we were talking trash on Hidden Hooker, but guys, this is a top-tier quarterback. Like, don't don't get that wrong. And if we can make a guy like that sit in the pocket and have to try to read a field for five, six seconds at a time, and he can't find nobody open. Uh who was it? Who was it? Uh JJ McCarthy? Yeah. Yeah. Um, CJ Stroud with all the defenses you've played and finding guys wide open downfield all day long. Yeah. Um, who the hell else is even in the conversation? Max Duggan? Sir, you have played D2 schools all season long in your old in your old Big 12 conference with your six and three Texas in second place. Or I, I, Texas is a six and three in conference, but you know, they're second place in your conference. Like we and you haven't even played them yet. We're not worried about you guys. This Last year, I thought we were going to walk our way to a national championship. And Alabama came in and, and kind of shut my mouth for a couple weeks in the, in the SEC championship. This year's different, guys. This Tennessee team is a top five team in college football. I, I, I will say that confidence. Hell, you could put them against the majority of teams in college football, and they are probably going to win majority of the time. This is no discredit to how they have played and what they will play like. This is a showcase of how good and how dominant this Georgia Bulldogs football team is. And I am a fan of the Georgia Bulldogs. I try to talk about sports without bias. This is my completely unbiased opinion. Georgia is by far the number one team in the country, and there is nobody that can take that away from them. Dude, I mean, you can talk about different things in this game. We talk about scheming. We talk about coaching. We talk about the positions that the coaches put the players in. Kirby Smart is the best coach in college football right now. Yes. It's not a conversation. Nick Saban's the GOAT. He can have that. I completely understand it. Kirby Smart is the best coach in college football right now. This coaching staff, Kirby Smart has said, is the most talented coaching staff he's ever been a part of. You talk about Todd Munkin, Will Muschamp. These guys are absolutely elite from a recruiting perspective, from a play-calling perspective, from a just absolute, I mean, everything. You put the puzzles on the puzzle board, and they go out there and they perform. And, yes, in this game, do we have a perfect game plan against Tennessee? Yes. Did we execute the game plan perfectly? Yes. Everything we did went according to plan. But when you talk about this team stacking up against our team, what this game boiled down to is the playmakers on Tennessee. Hendon Hooker, Jalen Hyatt, Cedric Tillman, uh, Jabari Small, and the defense for Tennessee lining up against our offense and our playmakers. And... From a player perspective, this game came down to every single 
of those or every single one of those 22 starters on the offensive and defensive side for Tennessee lined up against all 22 of our guys and all 22 of our guys were better than each one of theirs all across the board there wasn't one player on that field for Tennessee that played better than any player on our field it was absolutely total and utter domination from every aspect of the game and when you want to talk about a team like Tennessee and everything that they've been able to do, the explosive offensive plays, the crazy downfield passing attack, you want to talk about all that and you come into Sanford Stadium and play against this Georgia defense and the whole conversation was surrounded. How is Georgia going to stop the number one offense in the nation? But nobody wants to talk about how both of the teams stack up on an even board. Tennessee, are they the number one offense in the nation? Sure. Well, guess who your number two offense in the nation is? The Georgia Bulldogs. What's Tennessee's defense ranked? 82nd in the nation. What's Georgia's defense ranked? Fourth in the nation. Guys, why are we having the conversation of Tennessee's number one offense being a mismatch against Georgia's number one defense? And we're not talking about Georgia's number two offense against Tennessee's 82. It makes absolutely zero sense, and it's all hype-based. I get the hype behind Tennessee. They're an explosive team. They're fun to watch for a lot of people. But when you stack up against an actual, true contender, a team that is clearly the number one team in college football from a personal perspective, for, or from a personnel perspective, and from just total playing-wise perspective, you come out there and you got your butt whooped for four quarters, and that's exactly what happened. And you're right, Jake. Fans want to talk about the rain. Tennessee fans, they come out here and say, oh, well, the rain cost us a real chance in this game. Yeah, but, well, how about this Georgia team? Georgia's the team in this game that had scoring drives of one play, a scoring drive of three plays, and a scoring drive of six plays. And those, those drives right there of 10 total plays comprised of 143 passing yards, there was one team that this rain affected negatively, and that's the Georgia Bulldogs. Yes. You would have got you would have gotten beat by forty points. You just said it, Jake. I mean, you talk about a team like Georgia. Our first three scoring drives in this game took a grand total of twelve plays. We went up three scores, and the next scoring the next two scoring drives were a total of twenty seven plays, and we took thirteen minutes off the clock. You're welcome for doing that, Tennessee, because it would have been ugly, ugly, ugly. Yeah, um, and, you know, just to, just to give fans a little bit more perspective on things, I, I want y'all to know that Kirby is a guy, and Todd Munkin is the same. They're not going to open up the book for everybody. So when you see some of these wins and you think they're a little bit close, um, it's because we knew we could do that. When you yep. see Kirby Smart open up that defensive playbook and start getting to some blitz packages and stuff that we have not seen all year, like he did in this game against Tennessee in the second half, and you see Todd Munkin go into his bag, which is very, very deep, I must say. Um, just get ready, because we're still not there. We're still not all the way in the bag. That is going to come college football playoff time, which there's a chance we see y'all again. And let's let y'all know, it is, again, not going to be very fun. Uh, Kenny, I also have something I kind of want to mention. This is something I kind of looked at beforehand, and I was, I was thinking earlier today about former Georgia teams. And Weapons that we've had in the past and guys that kind of seemed a little bit misused in the offense. We talk about guys like McCole Hardman and, uh, you know, all those guys we had. Could you imagine? Kirby Smart has always been a great coach, but he took that next step when he had when he added Todd Munkin to this staff. We like to poke fun at Jake Fromm. 
I do want to say I do think part of that was because of the offensive uh, system that we kind of ran with uh, James Coley and Jim Chaney as the offensive coordinators for a couple of years. Could you imagine those Georgia teams with Todd Munkin as their offensive coordinator with these weapons? Because this is no disrespect to at Lad McConkey. Lad McConkey is a guy. Lad McConkey is going to be playing in the NFL on Sundays in in the near future. But could you imagine Todd Munkin with the offensive weapons that Georgia used to have? Guys like Todd Gurley and guys like, I don't even want to go back as far as Todd Gurley, but guys like DeAndre Swift and Nick Chubb and Sonny Michelle and all these running backs and all these star receivers we had for all these years. I could only, McCall Hardman would have been a first round pick in Todd Munkin's system. No doubt in my mind. He would have put together a 1,400 receiving yard season with 15 touchdowns if if we if we if he had to you know it's not really gonna happen in our system because we blow so many people out but dude Todd Munkin is the truth and I hope I will say this I don't think he's gonna be at the University of Georgia next year he is going to be the head coach somewhere else I believe I hope Kirby knows the type of guy he wants now somebody that is bold somebody that likes to kind of change the system somebody likes to that likes to play present day football and not 1980 football we have to get another guy in because dude Kirby Ever since Kirby got that guy that can handle his offense for him and there's nothing to worry about, this whole team has been different these past two years, man. And I, I wanted to take a little moment just to say, man, Todd, like, dude, Todd Munkin, I know, I know you probably don't listen to the podcast, you're an old man, but thank you. You have changed this program so well, and I do not feel like you get talked about enough. This offseason, I had said, I was talking about it, not, not on podcast or anything, I was saying that losing Todd Munkin would be worse than losing Dan Lanning. And that is the definite truth of this. Because it doesn't matter who you put with Kirby on the defensive side of the ball, but dude, Todd Munkin on the offensive side of the ball with Kirby's defense, it's a beauty to watch on Saturdays, man. No, I agree with you 100%. And as soon as you said that, Jake, you said, imagine Todd Munkin with some of these past Georgia teams. My mind immediately went to 2017. Yes. Immediately. Without a doubt, you talk about a team with Jake Fromm. I'm pulling up the stats right here. I know we talk about Jake Fromm from a different aspect. But uh, 2,600 yards passing, 24 touchdowns, 7 interceptions. Nick Chubb, 1,300 yards rushing. Sony Michelle, 1,200 yards rushing. DeAndre Swift, 600. Elijah Holyfield, 300. Receiving, you got Javon Wims, Terry Godwin, McCole Hardman, Riley Ridley, Isaac Nada, Charlie Werner. Uh, and then you talk about the defense, the defensive side of the ball, and the team that we put out there, Roquan Smith, Lorenzo Carter, DeAndre Baker, Dominic Sanders, DeAndre Walker, Jonathan Ledbetter. I mean, we talk about Davin Bellamy, Richard LeCount. I mean, this team was absolutely loaded, man. And this team, this 2017 team popped in my mind because this team is the team that should have broken the national championship drought. Mm-hmm. It should have happened. We all know what happened in the national championship game against Alabama. We know exactly what happened in the in the amazing Rose Bowl uh, victory against probably the best team in the country, which is that Baker Mayfield-led Oklahoma Sooners team. Mm-hmm. And then we came out there against that Alabama team, and, uh, you know, history's history. But, yes, you talk about Todd Munkin, man. Todd Munkin has contributed to this team, aside from Kirby Smart, from a coaching perspective, more than anybody I have ever seen. Um, it, it, he is, you were hundred percent right. Absolutely more of a contribution or a contributor than Dan Lanning. Losing Todd Munkin would affect this team more than losing Dan Lanning. I 100% agree with you. Um, and while I'll give a little disclaimer here and say that, um, 
you know, I do think Todd Munkin is a generational type coach. He's a coach on the, he's an offensive mind that can absolutely change a culture, change a program, change everything you do. Um, and yes, I do agree that losing him would be more significant than losing Dan Lanning. I think also a part of that is Will Muschamp. Um, if you lose Dan Landing and you don't have Will Muschamp there, you probably see a little bit of a difference. Now, I'm not saying that it'd be a total loss because Kirby Smart is probably the most defensive-minded coach in college football. But um, Will Muschamp, man, is an absolute stud. This guy has been huge for this Georgia team. I know he already had his run with the head coaching gig. I'm not sure he'll get another opportunity. Um, but, you know, it, it, we're, we're going to pay him. We're definitely going to pay him the money. So if he wants to stick around here and have a really good career at the University of Georgia, I don't think anybody would be disappointed. No, I agree. I agree. Muschamp is a guy too. Um, him and him and Satterfield, those are guys that could put yeah. together a defense pretty well. It shows too. I mean, people thought this defense was going to fall off and decline after last year, and we are again allowing less than ten points per game, which is a historic uh pace just for everybody out it's, there. It's absurd. It is absolutely absurd. So, is there anything else on this Georgia Tennessee game you'd like to talk about, Kenny? Man, um, I just want to say go dogs, man. Uh, it was it was an amazing – it wasn't an incredible game. It wasn't. But it was an absolute joy to watch because seeing us play the first half like we did and then come out there the second half and the tears of volunteer fans all over the nation falling out of the sky on top of Sanford Stadium, it just felt – it was a beautiful illustration of how this Georgia season has been. And yes. all the all the this and that and the Kent State and the Missouri and the and the blah 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 and the Tennessee beat Alabama all came crashing down on top of two teams lining up against each other and showing each other this is the best I got and one team was just clearly better than the other and um, you can't ask for more dog fans that you you really can't um, we're headed into a big matchup traveling to Starkville to take on Mississippi State this week. Um, I know Mississippi State's not the best team in the world, but they got a good dynamic offense. They got a little bit of a sleeper defense. And Kirby said it today in his presser, man. Um, if you think this team only throws the ball, you're mistaken. They can run the ball too. Uh, Mike Leach is a great coach. Um, this is a team you can't get caught sleeping against because they can put up some points. I know the Georgia defense is, like you just mentioned, Jake, 10 points a game, absolutely generational. And we'll dive into more of the numbers next week. But, um, you know, Tennessee, it was great. Let's enjoy it. But, you know, kind of keep that 24-hour rule, y'all. we, we got to move to the next week. Let's get ready. Head towards Mississippi State. Um, we're playing for that SEC championship right now. Yeah, for sure. It was it, it was a fun week, man. Um, but like you said, you got to keep that rule going, and we'll be back on this thing tomorrow. And, you know, that's whenever this is going to be done with. We're going to be on to, on to the next week. But until then, man, go dogs, baby. And it's going to be go dogs going forward. But this is a, this is a, this is a really, really – this one feels a little bit better off the tip of the tongue. Boy, does it. You are absolutely right. So I have some, I have some Falcons stuff too, but would, would, you like to, would you like to discuss some uh, college football playoff stuff first? Would you like just to kind of give like a little breakdown of your thoughts on these, on these rankings that just yeah, came out earlier today? Um, why don't you rip them all for us? I don't have them in front of me. I'm pulling them up. All right, so I'll do the top 10 because I, I feel like that's kind of the more meaningful ones. We also have a couple of them that's not in the top 10 that might be able to make make a little bit of a push at some point. Um, number one, Georgia. We, we retook that number one spot by no surprise. I think everybody kind of expected that after after our win against the former number one Tennessee Volunteers. Uh, number two, Ohio State. Um, again, no surprise. They had a little bit of a struggler against Northwestern this past week, but the weather was crazy. For a team with a quarterback like C.J. Stroud, that can happen. Um, three, Michigan. 
Uh, two Big Ten teams in the top three, so that, that's pretty notable. One of these teams have to lose at some point because I think they have a pretty big, they have a huge matchup two weeks from now. So keep an eye on that. At four, we have the undefeated TCU, a team that's playing in that Big 12 conference. Uh, not too much competition so far, but uh, they do have three pretty big games coming up against Texas, Baylor, and Iowa State, and that does not include a conference championship game. This is a team that, in my opinion, has to go undefeated, like nearly has to go undefeated to make a college football playoff because you're not going to take a one-loss TCU over a one-loss Tennessee or a one-loss Ohio State or a one-loss Michigan. Like that's, I don't, I don't think that's really going to be what happens. So they kind of have to keep on riding that high horse to keep that up. At five, we see Tennessee, and this is where things get a little bit not scary for Georgia fans because we know what we can do against Tennessee. But they are sitting in the legit, the most prime position to sit out a conference game and apps and just snatch up a playoff spot. So I, I kind of keep my eye on that see how some of these teams around them do in the coming weeks to see if they can kind of move them around. But I will say this, if they go into uh, like champion weekend, championship weekend, conference championship weekend, ranked at five, um, I don't think they will, but it, it's so hard to judge because Ohio State and Michigan have to play before that. And I, I do think that they will, that whoever loses that game is going to drop lower than Tennessee. My one argument is, is that, and this is for Georgia fans, a one-loss Tennessee that's only lost came against Georgia, and that's beat Alabama and blew out LSU, who's about to win the SEC West, is more notable than a team that has their only lost against Ohio State or Michigan, vice versa. Yeah. To me, at least, in my opinion. And all the hype the media has been giving them, I see a very, I have a very hard time seeing them not put Tennessee in if Tennessee finishes the season out strong. I think one of, one interesting thing, too, um, talking about the regular season, not necessarily getting into the conference championship conversation. Um, it might be this week, but um, Tennessee, in my opinion, um, I mean, this is a realistic thing, but I'm just saying in my opinion for what I think we're going to see from these teams, Tennessee should get jumped. I don't know if it'll be this week, but probably next week at least by Oregon on the playoff. Um, I don't think they will. Well, the reason I say that is because Tennessee will round out their regular season with Missouri, unranked Missouri, unranked South Carolina, and unranked Vandy. And Oregon's going to round out their regular season with 24th ranked Washington and 13th ranked Utah. So I think there's going to be a good chance that if Oregon can win out both of those games headed into their rivalry game against Oregon State, you may see them get jumped there with two additional ranked wins. And uh, one reason I believe that is because um, they're actually pretty close. Uh, this is actually the first list I was able to see that showed total points on the voting scheme or the voting uh, poll. And uh, Oregon and Tennessee were actually pretty close. 13-39 uh, were the votes for Tennessee compared to Oregon's 12-58. So you're under 100-point difference between those two. So I'm curious to see if uh, if Oregon goes and beats that ranked Washington team this week and then beats um, a top-15 Utah team, if they will jump them. And then you talk about Pac-12 championship. Um, that's going to be probably Oregon-USC, which they will certainly make the jump at that point if they win. Yeah, USC and UCLA both, both have to still play each other. So that's, that kind of decides who's going to be taking that second spot. And those are two teams that also have a chance at it. You know, if, if you know, I think USC a little bit more because they are ranked at that eighth spot. You, you can still kind of make a play at that point to jump up, especially if you do beat that Oregon team in the in that Pac-12 championship. Um, but, dude, it's just so hard because I look at Tennessee 
and I I know we we joke around about their five rank wins, um, but just just media wise, just looking at statistics, we're talking about a team that lost by forty six to Georgia or a team that lost by two possessions against Georgia. And no, I think that that's the argument. Hundred percent. My curiosity stems from the playoff and how they mm-hmm. value that. Do you do you think? I feel like personally, when we see this playoff rankings year after year, it's a little bit geared towards recency bias. And I'm wondering if maybe the college football playoff is going to discount Tennessee a little bit more than they would Oregon because Tennessee just lost to Georgia and Oregon lost week one. No, I can see that. That's where my question comes. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting one for sure. Um, The Utah argument is kind of a weird one too because Utah did jump back up the rankings, but this is a team that lost to Florida. Like, I know it was week one, but still, it's there, there's a lot of stuff that could happen in this playoff thing. And I, honestly, like, none of this matters until that final one comes out and decides which teams actually make it. Um, but, dude, there, there's so much flip-flopping that could happen. So I'm, I'm going to continue down this list real quick. Um, yeah, go ahead. So we got, rounding it out, we got Oregon at six, uh, LSU at seven, Southern, uh, USC at eight, uh, Alabama at nine, and Clemson at ten. We also have a couple teams that could make a possible play. And the only one I could really see that being would be number 12, UCLA. Um, I, I think UCLA has a possibility. And Ole Miss is also a team at 11. They have to have a lot of stuff break their way, a.k.a. win out and beat Georgia in the SEC championship and have LSU uh, lose one of these games coming up. So they have to have some stuff break their way to have a, have a possibility. But, uh, yeah. They've already played. Yes, they've already played. Ole Miss's only loss came against LSU, I believe. So that, that that's so kind of the tiebreaker. Yes, they're both one loss teams. They both only lost one game. Well, actually, LSU's a two loss team, but they're one of their losses came against Florida State in Week One, so that don't really matter. Um, but they both uh, one loss teams in conference, and LSU owns the tiebreaker. LSU's only loss in conference was that blowout loss against Tennessee. So LSU, their only two notable matchups remaining in the season are going to be Arkansas and A and M. Yes. Which I will say, um, I mean, Texas A&M is not a very good football team, but that LSU-Texas A&M game seems to be one of the most exciting games every single year. Yes, and uh, Alabama sells a shot, too. Um, Alabama, if they win out and LSU loses both games against Arkansas and uh, Texas A&M, Alabama will win the SEC West. It's not a very probable thing, in my opinion. I do think that... uh, LSU is going to win one of these games. Um, Arkansas and Texas a both, neither of them have been on the same tier as what a lot of people thought they were going to be going into this year. Um, they're both back into the SEC West in rankings. So I think I think Texas a has one conference win this year. So there's a lot of things that kind of go into that. Well, Ole Miss will have to lose two, right? Did you say that? For Alabama, no, because if Alabama wins out, that, they that play. yeah, they play this coming up weekend. I so. That. Yeah, if Alabama wins out, that means they would own the tiebreaker or Ole Miss. Yeah, so Ole Miss is only shot is to beat Bama this week. LSU clinches. LSU uh, LSU eliminates Alabama. Let's say LSU eliminates Alabama if they win this weekend. If LSU wins this weekend and Alabama wins this weekend, LSU clinches the SEC West. There you go. If Ole Miss wins this weekend and LSU wins this weekend, Ole Miss is still alive. But that would mean that, tech, that, that, would mean that LSU would have to lose at some point. Well, let's go ahead and say this then. I'm curious to see. Um, give me your playoff projection. My playoff projection right now. Okay. Oh, Lord. 
my playoff projection right now, I'm going Georgia 1, Ohio State 2, Tennessee 3, Oregon 4. I want to say what I think it should be is Georgia 1, Ohio State 2, Oregon 3, Tennessee 4. I don't know if they'll do a first-round matchup between Georgia and Tennessee. That's my biggest issue. I think they would try to – they would try – if they had the possibility – we've seen it in the past. We never see SEC teams rank or match up in the first round of the playoff. It's like it never happens. In the past years, we've seen two SEC teams make it a lot. Most of the time, they kind of do them at one and three. That's the only reason I put Tennessee at three. No, I, I agree with that. I think that's probably the key point here. And obviously, this is pending TCU losing, um, which very well could happen. You mentioned it. They got three tough, hmm. tough games coming up. Um. And then a fourth one with the play, with the playoff with the conference championship right. game too, which is it, right now it's looking like it's going to be another game against Texas, which I, I would probably take Texas in one of those games. And Vegas is on Texas right now too, so there's a lot of interesting things in that matchup. I think the interesting thing comes up with the ACC. Um, I was surprised. Let me pull this up. I was surprised to see Clemson stay as high as they did. Um, I don't think, truly, as a as a football fan, I don't think that if Clemson wins out and wins the ACC that they will jump Tennessee. I don't think no. that they deserve to, and I think Tennessee is a better team. But it does raise my eyebrows a little bit because you're looking at Ohio State and Michigan. One of those teams will lose. TCU has a really good shot at losing. Um, Oregon and USC or UCLA, one of those teams are going to have to lose. And LSU in the SEC Championship, all of these teams are ranked above Clemson with the exception of UCLA. Um, so there's going to be a shakeup, and I think it's probably going to become a conversation in the press about what does this playoff committee do with Clemson. Um, like I said, I don't believe that they deserve to, to get a spot above Tennessee. I think Tennessee would beat Clemson if they played. Um, but we know how the playoff committee is. They love Clemson. And um, I don't know, man. It, it's going to be – it's really going to come down to the wire. We say it every year that it comes down to the wire, but really this year because there are so many conferences. We're not used to seeing a team like TCU at 9-0 this far into the season. Um, we're not used to seeing a team like LSU, you know, be as good as they are or in the, you know, leading the SEC West right now, and we're dang sure not used to seeing USC contending. So it's just a really, really interesting situation where we're saying right now this season. It really is, because recent years we've seen, you know, obviously we talk about Georgia and Alabama facing off last year, and then uh, Alabama beating us, we still make it. Um, so we've seen two teams make it from the SEC, but it's been two teams that have both played. You go back to 17, that was the year that Alabama did not make the uh, conference championship game. Um, we played Auburn in the conference championship game, blew them out, and Alabama snuck their way in kind of like how Tennessee's, you know, on the door right now. So it is a very interesting thing to look at. And, you know, you mentioned TCU playing that Big 12. It is rare to see a team like that 9-0 and right now because this is usually a conference where they do play decent football, but they usually beat up on each other very like pretty badly. Like one of these teams are going to hand each other a loss at some point. And I, I do think that's still going to kind of stand true. So I, I do think TCU is going to lose a game at some point. That's the reason I left them out of my top four. Um, kind of the big one to me is the Big Ten. Um, you know, last year they had that third team with Michigan State that was kind of, you know, separating things a little bit more. And seeing two teams in the top three from the Big Ten is is very, very wild to me. Um, 
you know, last year during this time of the year, Ohio State was kind of falling off the fall off the radars, especially after losing to Michigan. It was it was kind of over. But, you know, whichever team loses that game also has a conversation to beat in the college football playoff to me. Especially if it's Michigan, I think. Um, if you head into that final matchup and Michigan loses to the number two team in the country um, and tennis and neither Michigan or Tennessee plays in the Big Ten uh, or plays in their conference championship, it's gonna raise uh, it's gonna raise the question of what do you do with those two teams. It's it's gonna be a really interesting thing, man. Um, I'm curious to see how this shakes up. And I want to say too, um, we talk about the college football playoff rankings. I want to mention the AP poll for a second because there are 63 first place votes on the AP poll. 63, uh, I don't know what you call them, representatives vote on the top team in the country. Georgia got 62 of the 63 votes. I don't know which one of you buffoons. Gave a first-place vote to Ohio State, but you should have your spot on the AP poll taken from you immediately. Revoke it right now. That's ridiculous. Revoke it right now. Um, we are getting a little bit long on the podcast, Kenny, I will say. So you want to go ahead and hop into some uh, some Falcon stuff? Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely be touching on this stuff as, the, as you know, the weeks go. We'll probably do this every week. So, you Absolutely. Know, we're kind of, kind of dipping into a little bit of Falcon stuff. Would you like to kick it off? Yeah, man, let's kick it off. Uh, we missed a couple weeks here on the pod. We already talked about that. Let's talk about this Panthers game first. Um, it was a day before Halloween, October 30th matchup with the Panthers. Jake and I actually watched this game together. This was a pretty interesting one. Um, absolute barn burner. Overtime win for the Falcons. Came out ahead 37-34 in this game. Um, a really, really good game collectively by this Falcons team, I will say. Um, you got to see Marcus get a little bit more action through the air. Mm-hmm. Finished with 253 and three touchdowns. He did have two interceptions, but for the most part, Marcus played a really, really good game in this uh, in this matchup. Uh, eight incompletions. He went 20 for 28. Caleb Huntley, we talk about him. Friend of the show. We love Caleb. Um, led the team with 91 yards rushing. Um, big game from Mr. Huntley. Uh, 167 yards on the ground. I already mentioned uh, with the passing yards. Uh, 253 through the air. Um, this Falcons team, this seemed to be one of the most complete games from the offensive side of the ball that we've seen in a while, especially coming off the past episode where we talked about the big letdown against that Bengals team where we talked about how we got down three possessions early and didn't really give Marcus a chance to put us back in the game. We didn't really try to air the ball out at all. So um, really, really good to see the Falcons come out here and put a little bit more of a offensive push on things. You saw Drake London get some action, four receptions for 31 yards. Saw Kyle Pitts. Five receptions, 80 yards, and a touchdown. These are two guys, man. When you spend top 10 draft picks on key players on your offense in the passing game like this, you've got to utilize them more. And that's our biggest, that was probably our biggest critique in that Bengals game is get these guys the football, give them an opportunity to make plays. And that's exactly what we did in this Carolina game, man. Um, really, really good game for the Falcons and very, very happy to come away with the win in this one. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was a great game. Uh, really, really fun to want to watch for fans. Uh, DJ Moore took off his helmet on a possible, you know, game-winning, game-winning touchdown, and it, it pushed the extra point back, and they ended up missing, missing the extra point. It was kind of a funny moment, and then you know we go to overtime, um, and Young Waku comes up, and Falcons fans, we kind of know what to expect when that happens. Uh, he, he's pretty automatic outside of this past week against the Chargers, where he missed a fifty-yarder, but you know, fifty yards is, is a long way, and uh, Koo is is, you know, a top three kicker in football, and. Yeah, that's what we expect. Uh, you touched on a lot of stuff pretty good, though, so I, I, I'll just let you have that one. All right, well, let's uh, let you kick off the following week. 
All right, so this is a game going against the Chargers that I think a lot of people were excited for because this Chargers team is a team that, uh, you know, going into the game, they were, they were uh, five and or four and three, a team that's kind of not met expectations as much as what people have thought. But we all know they're a pretty good football team. Um, coming into the game, they were without um, their top two wide receivers, Keenan Allen and, um, why is his name, Mike Williams. But to be fair, the Falcons are also without A.J. Terrell and Casey Hayward. So it, it's kind of a kind of a even you know you take you an eye for an eye matchup type deal right there so uh a little bit of an interesting thing but this is a game that if i told falcons fans we li- we limited the charges to 20 points you would think that we'd probably you know you'd be you'd be fine with that we, we would accept that all day long because we know what this offense can do when it gets rolling um but the offense on our side really did not show up um we talk about getting the ball more to drake london and kyle pitts and that's exactly what we tried to do um 14 of Mariota's 23 attempts went towards those guys uh they had 14 targets between the two and they racked up a whopping five catches for 50 yards so it it was it was not a very successful thing whether that be on the receivers or on Mariota um a lot of a lot of just sloppy football in this game too uh Drake London had a ball when we're in the red zone where he caught it and he kind of got wrapped up a little bit and uh, Khalil Mack came and just snatched the ball out of his hands and took off running the other way. Uh, rookie, you know, welcome to the league moment right there. Also, Taquan Graham, man. Dude, I, I don't even want to say I'm mad about it because it, it was it was kind of a goofy play in general. Austin Eckler ran the ball at the middle. They were already in field goal range. They were already going to win the game. And uh, he fumbled the ball, and Taquan Graham picks it up and starts running it down the field and at, just drops the ball. And Chargers get it back. Complete a long pass, Joshua Palmer, and you know the rest is history. So this is a game that I look at it for the Falcons. Um, I don't have any blaring takeaways or any you know super things we need to change. You know, going forward for this Falcons team, this is just one of those games that if you play better, you're probably going to win it majority of the time. Like if we just go out there and play better football to what the Chargers were playing out there, we're probably going to win this game more often than not. And we just played really sloppy football and it didn't turn around. Uh. A positive note on this game, we did see Cordero Patterson back on the field, which, you know, Falcons fans, everybody loves Cordero Patterson. He's he's awesome, and that just adds to this, you know, two-headed monster running back group we had before with Tyler Algier and Caleb Huntley. Now we add the main man back with Cordero Patterson, uh, and he put together 13 carries, 44 yards, and two tuds, so he had himself a little bit of a game. He got some touches. Uh, There was one play where I think he was at, like, the five-yard line. He just lowered his shoulder on somebody and just plowed his way into the end zone. It's kind of crazy to me watching Cordero Patterson when I was young and growing up and, you know, 13, 14 years old. He was a punt returner, like the best one in the league. He was insane at returning kicks, and now all of a sudden he's a bruising running back. Uh, you know, now that I'm an adult 22-year-old man, uh, things changed in life. And, you know, it didn't really take a turn that I expected, but really, really happy to see him back on the field, man. Absolutely. I think you, you mentioned it really well with, with getting CPAP back in the game, getting back him back into the fold on the offense. Uh, my biggest critique in this game is when you are – you already said it, 14 attempts between your top two receiving threats and Drake London and Kyle Pitts, and you're just not able to get the ball to them. Um, five receptions total out of those 14 attempts is not very efficient, especially when they're totaling only 50 yards. Um, I, this just seemed like a game where you need to get the ball into your playmaker's hands a little bit more. And we tried to for the most part, but – um, I think it's a pretty unacceptable way to go in this game when Cordero Patterson gets one reception for nine yards. Yes. Um, when you're playing against a team like the Chargers, who do have a very good defense, especially on the perimeter, you already mentioned it with Khalil Mack, absolute grown man, 
This team is stacked in the secondary. Um, they're stacked at the defensive line. The pass rush is nuts. The linebacking core is great. Um, from from pretty much all aspects of this defense, this is a very, very well-balanced team. Um, you have to take advantage of your mismatches. And I think the biggest mismatch on this Falcons team, really, in any game, is going to be Kyle Pitts and Cordero Patterson. And when you have a guy like Cordero Patterson in the backfield, um, I think you've got to do more to get him the ball in space and let him make a move. And two touchdowns on the ground is great, but um, when you're playing a team like the Chargers, like I just mentioned, a defense like that, you got to get the ball in the air a little bit more. And what better way to do it than to dump it, you know, on a wheel route out the backfield, maybe a little, uh, you know, perimeter play to, to CPAT, get him the ball a little bit more. So I'd like to see that moving forward. Maybe they were trying to limit his touches a little bit first game back. I'm not sure. But nonetheless, uh, you limit this Chargers team to 20 points, Jake. You said it. It's a really, really good thing for the defense i know they're missing a couple weapons but we're missing a couple key pieces so um yeah i mean this seemed like a game where we really had an opportunity to win it uh, a couple weird things happened down there at the end but i for the most part just kind of a miscue day for the falcons i uh, don't want to write it off at all you never want to write off a mid-season game against a team that you have a really good chance of beating but um a couple things that i think we could have done to, to be a little bit more productive on the offensive side of the ball no i agree for sure uh before we get off the Falcons talk, I do want to mention Tyler Algier, man. He had, you know, a career game so far for this kid. And, you know, we talk about Caleb a lot because Caleb is a guy. We know he, he's a hometown kid. But I also do want to give love to Tyler Algier because this guy, you know, drafting him out of BYU as a, you know, a mid-round pick, he has been everything and more that Falcons fans could, you know, expect from him. Uh, he put together a 10-carry, 99-yard day on the ground. Um, he is fun to watch. And that's one thing about all three of these running backs the Falcons run out there. You very rarely see them lose yardage. They are all, all three of them are doing everything they can to stay up and keep toting. Like they are three power backs. They are three horses back there. And it, it's kind of like old school football you would get to watch with the Falcons. That's coming. You see all the national things saying that the Falcons are one of the most fun teams in football to watch because we do things so differently in a league in, you know, an era nowadays where you see every single team go out there and these quarterbacks are throwing the ball 50 times a game. The Falcons are just going to run the ball 40 times right down your throat and, you know, see if we could beat you. Maybe it's not the best method to win, you know, games whenever you're going against teams like Cincinnati, like we saw earlier, or, you know, later down the line playoffs, if we if we make it that far, or, uh, you know, later season games against some of these teams we have coming up. But it is very entertaining football to watch in the NFL because different from college. These are all grown men on this football field. So to see another grown man run through a other grown man's face has to be one of the most fun things to watch for a dude and a female like if, if you if you like that. But I just know from my experience personally, seeing an NFL player just plant through another NFL player's face is like, holy cow, maybe some of these guys are human and some of these guys are robots. I don't know what is what, but, you know, they're all amazing at football. <laughs> Right, and to play devil's advocate inside of this coaching staff a little bit, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. When you are averaging more yards per carry than you are yards per pass attempt, it's probably hard to get the ball in the air. <laughs> you're you're going to want to keep that ball on the ground as much as possible. When you're averaging 5.7 yards per carry between these guys, um, you want to keep the ball on the ground. So I, I understand that, but um, yeah, I mean, when it gets down to the nitty gritty and you got to win the game, you got to do everything you can to get the ball in space to your playmakers. And we tried to, we just weren't really able to. So look for that moving forward. Yeah, definitely. I I agree. Well, that's it for me on Falcons Talk, Kenny. That's it for me, man. I'm uh, pumped to get back on the pod, y'all. It's uh, always a good 
time to get on here and talk some ball with y'all, especially when we miss a week and we can talk about some really, really good key points from our teams. Um, obviously, first episode of the week is kind of our review of everything that happened since we were last on here. And uh, and uh, the, the second episode this week, probably Thursday night, we'll get on here and talk about what we've got, or excuse me, tomorrow night. We'll get on here and talk about what we uh, are going to be looking at moving forward up into this next week. We've got some, some pretty good matchups across the board. So uh, I'm just glad to be out here and uh, get you guys some more content. Oh, yeah. Uh, I also want to mention, too, I think Kenny did a really good job right there. But, uh, you know, just thank you all so much for the support. And, you know, as Kenny mentioned, can't wait to get back on this, you know, week to week and discuss all this stuff. We're getting really getting to the prime time of all this, you know, football action and stuff where I feel like it just started and it's already at the end. So, um, you know, we're not quite there yet, but we are fastly approaching, especially on the college side. Uh, you know, just a couple more breakdowns left this season. Uh we're looking at three regular season games. We're looking at SEC championship. We're looking at two college football. So we got seven games for Georgia to break down. And we have seven games that we're going to be recapping positively on for Georgia. So we have a, a lot of a lot of fun stuff coming ahead. But uh, yeah, just thank you all so much. And uh, I can't wait to see you guys next time. Absolutely. We'll catch you all on the next one.